Welcome to The S Factor. Now here's your host, Chuck Shazer. Hello everyone and welcome to another exciting edition of The S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. Thank you for joining me today. I can't believe we're in September already. Can you believe it? Summer came and went. Unbelievable. Thank you for joining me here today on the 5th of September, 2020. What is The S Factor? Well, this show, The S Factor, is all about science. And I want to welcome you onto my starship. I'm your Captain Chuck Chaser. Welcome to my starship as we explore the universe, as we explore the solar system. And we talk about all things terrestrial and extraterrestrial right here on The S Factor. As I was saying at the start of the show, my goodness, summer came and went so fast. I had someone tell me not too long ago that that's what's going to happen, Chuck. You're going to see. Once the 4th of July comes and goes, the summer goes like that, the blink of an eye. And they were correct. And just like every single month, I join you right here, the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock on Cruising 92.1 WVLT, just like every single month, there's no shortage of science news. There's a lot of cool stuff going on. We're going to talk about the science news today, and we're also going to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart, the future of humanity. The future of humanity in the way of, are we going to merge with machines? Are we going to create AI? Is it going to rule us? Are we going to rule it? How are we going to stop it from doing that and becoming a Terminator-type entity. There's so many exciting ways to look at that. Of course, the most exciting is us being able, being able to control the AI and have a safe future with artificial intelligence. We're going to talk about Elon Musk's Neuralink because he did a demonstration, I believe it was with a pig. We're going to talk about that after the science news. There's so much to talk about. Again, thank you for joining me. And as always, the S Factor is brought to you by scienceanimated.net. With a lot of kids remote learning, not only in the South Jersey area here, but nationwide, if you want some fun science, some educational family content, check out my website, scienceanimated.net, if you will. They're going to see Science Animated, the Human Body, which is a 40-minute DVD. Also available as a stream, the DVD is $16, the stream is $9.99, you can watch it on any device, anytime. Very cool stuff there. The Orbit Show is a YouTube series, there's a brand new Orbit Show on the air right now. It's about sea lice, I recommend checking that out. I'm working on a coloring book for children, the first page of that is available for free as a PDF, a downloadable PDF. You can download it and print out as many as you'd like. They're available at scienceanimated.net as well. And of course, past S-Factors. If you love listening to the S-Factor here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT, make sure you check out scienceanimated.net in case you've missed any of them. Now, this show has been on the air since December 2019, so I have quite a few shows there in podcast form on the website as well. So let's talk about some of the science news, some of the hottest, if you will, science news since I've last joined you. 
We have some news bit here from space.com. Very interesting. Did a supernova cause Earth's mass extinction 360 million years ago? Fossil records suggest Earth's ozone layer took a protracted beating. One of the worst extinction events in Earth's history may have been triggered by a supernova. The violent death of a distant star. Remember when we've talked about in the past coronal mass ejections from the sun. And that's supercharged particles coming from the sun. Some people may may think about that and say, well, does that mean there's like flames coming? <laughs> like when you hear about solar flares, there's flames coming off of the sun and those flames are hitting Earth. No, not necessarily. There are bursts from the sun. And yes, that is flame-like, yes. But we're talking about supercharged particles heading towards Earth after one of these incredible events. And when that happens, our electrical grid isn't really uh, the safest thing in the world uh, to combat something like that. And so it's very delicate. Uh, and we should harden that because it would wipe out you know, all the satellites. It would be a terrible thing. So uh, we've, we barely missed one of those things in, I think it was 2012, so what this article is saying here is that a supernova, which is much different than that, could have triggered an extinction-level event. Now, about 75% of all species on Earth died out at the end of the Denovan period, about 360 million years ago. Rocks from this era preserve many thousands of spores that appear to be scorched by ultraviolet radiation, indicating that something went seriously wrong with our protective ozone layer. The destructive force may have come from very far afield, a new study suggests. Earth-based catastrophes such as large-scale volcanism and global warming can destroy the ozone layer. But evidence for those is inconclusive for the time interval in question. Now, that's from lead author Brian Fields, a professor of physics and astronomy at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Campaign. Instead, we propose that one or more supernova explosions about 65 light years away from Earth could have been responsible for the protracted loss of ozone. And remember how important that ozone layer is. It is extremely important. If ultraviolet radiation, if that ozone layer were not there, there would be nothing protecting us that would come in and we would be hit with radiation. I don't think things wouldn't grow easy because there would be nothing protecting us and animals and plant life from that radiation. So it's very important that the ozone layer stays. Now, to put this into perspective, one of the closest supernova threats today is from the star Betelgeuse, which is over 600 light years away and well outside of the kill distance of 25 light years away. Now that's from co-author Adrian Ertel, a graduate student in Fields Research Group. She said that in the same statement there. Now, death by an exploding star. Supernovas which end the lives of giant stars such as Belagese can hit Earth life with a powerful one-two punch. Highly energetic UV, UV, excuse me, X-ray and gamma radiation delivers the first wallop, and the second comes from swarms of charged particles called cosmic rays that are accelerated tr to tremendous speeds by the explosion. This combo can damage Earth's ozone layer for 
100,000 years or so. Fossil evidence suggests that biodiversity decreased substantially for about 300,000 years at the end of the Donovan, which is often called the Age of Fishes because of its tremendous fish diversity. So the end Divianin extinction may have involved several different dramatic events, perhaps two or more nearby supernova explosions. This is entirely possible, said study co-author Jesse Miller, another grad student in Fields Lab. Massive stars usually occur in clusters with other massive stars, and other supernovae are likely to occur soon after the first explosion. The researchers suggested a way to test their hypothesis. Look for the radioactive isotopes plutonium-244 and samarium-146 in rocks and fossils from the end Denuvian time period. Neither of those isotopes occur naturally on Earth today, and the only way they can get here is via cosmic explosions. So there's your clue. Such a search has not yet happened, the team, study, uh, team members said. Now, Fields and his team weren't the first researchers to find possible links between supernovas and extinction events. For example, a different group recently proposed that a supernova contributed to the minor mass extinction at the end of the Pliocene epoch about 2.6 million years ago. The mass extinction at the end of the Cretaceous period 66 million years ago, which famously did in the non-avian dinosaurs, was likely triggered when a a comet or asteroid about six miles wide slammed into Earth. Of course, you remember that from, you know, your uh, grade school days, learning that. The overarching message of our society, of our study, is that life on Earth does not exist in isolation. Field said, we are citizens of a larger cosmos, and the cosmos intervenes in our lives, often, well, but sometimes ferociously. The end Devianin and end Cretaceous events are two of the five mass extinctions that scientists have traditionally recognized. However, there's a growing consensus that we're now living through a six-mass extinction, one caused primarily by humanity, with global warming and habitat destruction two of the biggest drivers. And that was brought to you by Space.com. Think about that. I don't want to think that there is, that we're living in a... Uh, currently living in a six-mass extinction event. Not at all. That doesn't sit well with me, and it shouldn't sit well with anybody. Hopefully that is not the case. Could the universe collapse into a singularity? A new study explains how. Speaking of singularity, uh, have any of you seen Sophie the Robot? She is an AI robot that is being made and and Research is being put into it, and it's being um, developed by a company called Singularity Net. And I just kind of, when I see when I see that word singularity, now I think about that <laughs> that incredible research and development that's happening, the R and D that's happening with with Sophie the robot. She was actually on television, the AI known, known as Sophie. Incredible stuff, folks. It's coming. I don't know if I'm going to see it. In my lifetime, that they, when I hear people talk about how how far along we are with AI, uh, Professor Michu Kaku says that you know we're not even there where it has the intelligence of a cockroach yet. So we'll see. I mean, I 
we may be surprised. And I think once we develop AI, once it gets here, one of the once you get past all of the you know science fiction lure that we've all been accustomed to through uh, popular media, once you get past that fear of the Terminator possibly coming, you think about where could it lead us? What could it do for us? Artificial intelligence may solve global warming. Artificial intelligence may solve cancer. Artificial intelligence may solve how we can become interstellar safely and in a timely fashion, because right now we're not. So that's going to be the positive developments there. But anyway, I got off on a little tangent there about Singularity Net, the company that's working on Sophie the Robot. Let's get back to this article here. And this is by Live Science, of course. Now, could the universe collapse into a singularity? Let's see what they're saying about this. A new study explains how. Has the universe been around forever? If so, perhaps it's been bouncing back and forth in a never-ending cycle of big bangs in which all matter bubbles out of a singularity, followed by big crunches in which everything gets swallowed up again to form that dense point from which the universe is born again. And the cycle continues over and over and over. The math of those theories, however, has never really worked out in a way that could tell us whether our universe is cyclic or has one beginning and one end. But recently, a team of theorists have invoked the power of so-called string theory to solve some fundamental riddles of the early universe. The result could give us the theoretical push needed to build a universe from scratch and hence lend support to a repeating universe. If you want to build your own private theoretical model of the universe, be my guest. Nobody will ever stop you from making your own cosmology. But if you want to play the game of the universe, you have to play by its rules. That means no matter what your model of the cosmos contains, you have to confront some cold, hard observational evidence. For instance, we know that we live in an expanding universe in which galaxies and stars are flying away from us at an ever-increasing speed. Scientists can tell that by using different types of techniques to calculate how fast galaxies at different distances from us are moving away, we also have pictures of the baby universe when it was just about 380,000 years old. Now, 300... 80,000 years old, that is a baby universe because now we're at 13.8 billion years old. The universe, I should say, not us, the universe. Within that baby picture, we see interesting patterns, tiny splotches and blotches that reveal the existence of slight temperature and pressure differences in that young universe. We're able to explain all these observations and more with what's called the Big Bang Cosmology, plus an additional idea known as inflation, which is a process that we think happened when the universe was less than a second old. During that process, which itself lasted for the teeniest sliver of a second, the universe became much, much larger, taking quantum differences and making them bigger in the process. Those differences eventually grew as slightly denser patches had slightly stronger gravity, making them bigger, over time, those differences became large enough to 
imprint themselves as splotches in the baby picture of the universe. And billions of years later, things like stars and galaxies, but that's a separate story altogether. Isn't it amazing when you really think about it? If you go outside at night on a really clear night, and if you're in a kind of a remote area, I've talked about that in the past on the S-Factor where I was visiting uh, my cousin who owns a log cabin business in North Carolina, Fall Creek Cabins, if you want to check them out. There aren't any city lights to really compete with the starlight. And you can see so much. It was so beautiful. It was the first time in my life I ever saw anything quite like that. I mean, we always look up at the, at the night sky, at the you know, at the stars, right? It's so cool, especially if you're camping and you're if you're out at night, no matter where you are. But terrestrial lighting, or the lighting that, that comes from our cities, can drown out that light from the stars. If you're in more of a secluded area, you see that light, and it's brilliant. And you see, it, it's breathtaking. The amount of stars that you see, it, it's absolutely breathtaking. I suggest you try it. If you've never done that, try to find a secluded area on a nice clear night, and you can see so much. It's so beautiful. It's amazing. Now, check this out. King of the early universe. Tired of the Big Bang Theory and want your own version of cosmology? That's fine, but you'll have to explain things like the expansion of the universe and the splotches in the baby picture of the cosmos. In other words, you have to do a better job at explaining the universe than inflation does. It seems easy, but isn't. The pressure, density, and temperature differences in the universe's early years has bedeviled many alternative cosmologies, including one of the most popular, let's go bigger than the Big Bang ideas, known as Epicrotic Universe. And the word epicrotic comes from the Greek word for conflagration, which means which refers to an ancient philosophical idea of a constantly repeating universe. In the epiclotic scenario, the universe constantly repeats. Under that perspective, we are currently in a bang phase, which will eventually uh, slow down and crunch back down to an incredibly high temperatures and pressures. Then the universe will somehow bounce back and reignite in a new Big Bang phase. Hopefully that's a ways away. Let's hope our universe doesn't crunch down anytime soon, shall we? So, to replicate the blotches and splotches in the baby picture of the universe, they attempt to put together some vague physics to explain the crunch-bounce cycle. It, it's smooth, no bumps, no wiggles, no splotches, no differences in temperature, pressure, or density. The trouble is it's hard to replicate the blotches and splotches in the baby picture of the universe. In an epichronic universe, when we attempt to put together some vague physics to explain the crunch, bounce, bang cycle, and I do emphasize vague here because these processes involve energies and scales that we aren't even cl coming close to understanding with known physics, everything just comes out to smooth, no bumps, no wiggles, no splotches, no differences in temperature, pressure, or density. And that doesn't just mean the theories don't match observations of the early universe. It means that these cosmologies don't lead to a universe filled with galaxies, stars, or even people. So that's kind of a bummer. The S-brain saves the day. S-brains. So you've heard of string theory, right? That's the universe of fundamental physics where every particle is a really tiny vibrating string. 
But a few years ago, theorists realized that the strings don't have to be one-dimensional. And the name they give to this multi-dimensional string, a brain. B-R-A-N-E. And as for the S part, well, most brains in string theory can roam around freely through space and time. But the hypothetical S-brain can exist only in one instance in time, under very special condi conditions. In a new ekrotic scenario, when the universe was at its smallest and densest configuration possible, an S-brain appeared, triggering the re-expansion of the cosmos filled with matter and radiation, and with small variations in temperature and pressure, giving rise to the well-known splotches in the baby pictures of the universe. That's what three physicists propose in a new paper published online in July to the preprint server ARXIV, meaning the paper has yet to be peer-reviewed. Is this idea correct? Who knows? String theory is on thin theoretical ice recently, as experiments like those at the Large Hadron Collider have failed to find any hints of a theory known as supersymmetry, which is a crucial underpinning of string theory. And the concept of S-brains is itself a controversial idea within the string theory community, as it's not exactly known if brains would be allowed to exist only in one moment in time. There's also the fact that not only is the universe as we know it expanding, but it's accelerating in its expansion, with no sign whatsoever of slowing down, let alone collapsing, anytime soon. Figuring out what could make it hit the brakes and reverse course is tricky. And that was from Live Science. Think about what we, what I just talked about there. I mean, the universe is expanding. What is it expanding? Where's it going? We know that the galaxies are moving further and further apart. We know this. We know galaxies can collide over time. The vastness of space. The emptiness of space. There's a lot of that, too. So where are we headed when we're expanding like that? We don't know. Think about how, in a way, how cool that is, right? We don't really know where all of this is going. It's incredible stuff. That's why I love science, and that's why it's such a pleasure for me to bring you this stuff on Cruise 92.1 WVLT, the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock. You're listening to The S Factor. My name's Chuck Shazer. Let me also mention that you can communicate with me. I know this is a pre-recorded show, but you can communicate with me via Facebook at facebook.com slash science animated, twitter.com slash science animated, and of course my website. Anytime you have a question or comment about the show, any of the any of the educational content that I provide, info at scienceanimated.net. Info at scienceanimated.net or you can use the contact form at scienceanimated.net. You have a question you want me to read on air? I've got one of those uh, today. Hopefully, I'll get to that. Uh, but but make sure you do that. I'd love to hear from you guys. I do miss uh, being live in the studio, of course, but this is another way for us to communicate. I want to take a quick time out and talk about something that is probably affecting lots of people out there. The fact that, you know, gyms were closed. I think they're starting to open now. However, if you find yourself not comfortable with going back to a gym, there's an option for you. 
And of course, I'm talking about one of my favorite sponsors, Tawny Basil, that and she runs Tawny Fit, which is a way for you to get in the best shape of your life. She's a personal trainer. She's a certified personal trainer. And she will go to a gym and work out with you. She will do it uh, virtually with you, which is a, a wonderful thing that is helping people stay in great shape during you know, this horrible pandemic that we've been uh, confronted with in this country. It has enabled people to, it gives them another opportunity to stay in shape. And I was going to have Tawny on the radio show today on the S-Factor to talk about what she's doing with her clients. She was unable to come on. She's she's a new mommy. She's got two little beautiful little boys. So she's very busy to say the least. So she couldn't get on. Maybe next month we'll have Tony Basil on from Tony Fit. So she sent me something uh, to read on air so you guys know what's going on with her. So gyms have opened, but like many others, you may be hesitant to go back. Starting September 14th, Tony Fit will be offering training for clients in Millville, New Jersey right off of Route 55. 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and 60 minute sessions will be available. This all comes with nutritional guidance and workouts to do on your own. If you are uninterested in leaving your home, video chat sessions will also still be available. Both of these options will be at a schedule that is most convenient to you. Well, Tony is well known for that. She will work around your schedule. If you don't think you have time to work out and get in better shape, it's not the case. She will do it with you. She'll guide you on that journey. She'll show you the, the right way to do it so you can lose the weight, you can get in tremendous shape, and that's what she does for a living. And she can do it whether it's a virtual session or now since the gyms are starting to open again, she can meet you at the gym and you can do it there. Now you can reach Tawny if you're interested in the getting into better shape and doing it with a professional certified trainer. You can reach Tawny on every platform as TawnyFit or TawnyFit at gmail.com. You can reach her that way via her email address. Now, I thought this was really, really super cool. Check this out. This is for my S-Factor listeners only. You're not going to find this anywhere else with TawnyFit, but right here on the S-Factor. Be sure to include your A-listener to the S-Factor and get one free session with your training package. She says, stay, stay safe and healthy. Listen to that, folks. If you tell, if you contact Tawny Basil, tawnyfit at gmail.com, and you say, I'm interested, work, whatever your goal is, you want to lose weight, you want to get stronger, you want to gain some muscle, you want to over get into better, overall better health physically, if you reach out to her, and tell, your, tell her you're a listener, one free session with your training package. One free session. That's very generous of her to do that. And thank you, Tawny, for doing that. Hopefully we have you on next month and you can tell us all about uh, how things have been going at the gym since they've uh, reopened not too long ago. So now, back to the science news. Very interesting story here. How the University of Arizona used number two to solve its number one problem, the coronavirus. The university made a bold claim this week that it stopped the coronavirus outbreak before it started. Now let's see how they did that. Universities around the U.S. have struggled with outbreaks as they attempt to start the fall semester. But at the Lincoln's Hall dorm, just across the street from the University of Arizona's Recreation Center, two students were found to have contracted the coronavirus, and they were asymptomatic. 
The university said it pulled this off by combining more common forms of coronavirus mitigation, swab testing, and contract, excuse me, contact tracing with a mere exotic one. Analyzing sewage. Whoa. Okay. The university had implemented a campus-wide initiative to conduct what's known as wastewater-based epidemiology. This effort, which involves analyzing sewage samples for traces of the coronavirus, gave the university a way to quickly and repeatedly look for traces of the virus in discrete groups of people, in this case dorms, as part of an early warning system to catch cases of COVID-19. From one test, we get the prevalence of the virus within the whole community, said Ian Pepper, an environmental biologist who is leading the wastewater testing effort on campus. The idea is catching on. Researchers in the United Kingdom launched a program in July to conduct cross-country wastewater surveillance. In Israel, scientists who collected sewage samples nationwide in March and April heralded the efforts as an effective, non-invasive way of tracking outbreaks across geographic regions. At the University of Arizona, Pepper said this type of testing is especially useful for finding and isolating infecting infected individuals before they have a chance to spread the virus widely. The two cases that have been identified at the university were both asymptomatic and Pepper said wastewater testing could be sensitive enough to detect the coronavirus up to a week before a person develops symptoms. Think about how useful that is. Think about how many people, you know, by the time they find out they have the coronavirus, they may, may have gone to the grocery store, they may have uh, talk to loved ones that are elderly and at risk. So this is a really cool way to find out before you even have a fever, if you have it or not. So you have seven precious days in which you can undergo intervention. Pepper's team is conducting regular tests of sewage from 20 buildings across campus, including dorms and the university's student union center. If a sample comes back positive for the coronavirus, the school's protocol is to then test everyone who lives or works in the building using traditional nasal swabs or antigen tests that are designed to detect viral proteins. Infected individuals are then quarantined, according to Dr. Robert C. Robbins, president of the University of Arizona. Wastewater testing is designed to catch fragments of the virus that are shed from the body in fecal matter. Pepper's team has been collecting sewage samples from buildings twice a week around 8.30 a.m., a time that Pepper said is after people got up and typically go to the bathroom. If there are positive results, the sampling can be done more frequently, he said. But the researchers also found that bits of the virus tend to linger in wastewater rather than being dispersed immediately. Robin said wastewater-based epidemiology is a crucial part of the school's test, trace, and treat protocol that is a valuable tool that allows for more precise testing. But this type of sampling can also be done at neighborhood and community level, according to Pepper. In addition to studying sewage on campus, scientists at the University of Arizona have been analyzing samples from wastewater treatment plants across the country, including New York and Los Angeles. In addition to finding potential hotspots, wastewater testing can help public health officials measure the severity of viral transmission in communities. In Arizona's Pima County, for example, wastewater samples taken six weeks ago when the state was dealing with a significant spike in cases were found to have sky-high concentrations of the virus, according to Pepper. 
In the last two weeks, those concentrations, along with a number of new cases, have dropped dramatically. Pepper said he and his colleagues are hoping to publish the results of the research in a peer-reviewed journal, but for now they are just pleased that this testing method is proving to be effective. They're all jazzed. Everyone is really hyped up, he said. It's a great case study. So think about that. Analyzing fecal matter to give you a heads up what is happening with the virus. Who has the virus and doesn't know it? That's a very, that's a very interesting way of determining who has coronavirus, is it not? I'd say that's different to say the least. A different kind of a new story there. We're going to take a time out and be right back after a few words from our sponsors. You are listening to The S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. Thank you for joining me today on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. Or if you're watching me on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, however you are watching or listening to The S Factor, of course, this show will be available as a podcast in the coming days. So if you miss it, you can always check it out as a podcast on scienceanimated.net. That's scienceanimated.net. We'll be right back after these important words. Car buying can be a brutal experience. Pushy salespeople and deals that are too good to be true. Choosing the right dealership is crucial in today's marketplace. So, where can you go? Since 1976, there has been a dealership in Vineland that is family-owned and operated and has a diverse selection of cars, trucks, utility vehicles, and more. J&C Auto Sales at 1912 West Landis Avenue in Vineland can guide you through the car buying experience with no hassle and a laid-back atmosphere. The Shazer brothers carefully select each vehicle they sell and offer Carfax reports on all their inventory. Shop in a stress-free environment and get the vehicle you want at a price that won't rock your bank account. Stop by and mention the S-Factor for a special offer. J&C Auto Sales is located at 1912 West Landis Avenue in Vineland. You can give them a call today at 856-696-4072. That's 856-696-4072. Or check them out online at jcauto.net. Serving South Jersey for 44 years. Welcome back to the S-Factor I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. You can catch me here the first Saturday of every month on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. And if you missed the show, you can go to scienceanimated.net, my website, and listen to the podcast version of the show. And you also get to see the Orbit show. It's all family-friendly educational content on scienceanimated.net. I have, I'm working on a coloring book for children right now. The first page of it is available as a free PDF if you want to download that. Of course, scienceanimated.net is home to Science Animated, the Human Body which is a 40-minute animated movie that's available as a DVD or a stream. The DVD is $16, the, the stream is $9.99, so you can watch that on any device, so it's kind of versatile in that way. So a lot of cool things going on there, and I hope you check it out. Back to the science news here. Is the Y chromosome dying out? The sex we're assigned at birth depends largely on a genetic flip of the coin. X or Y. The two Y chromosomes, excuse me, two X chromosomes in you almost always develop ovaries, an X and a Y chromosome, testes. These packages of genetic material don't just differ in terms of the body parts they give us. With 45 genes in comparison to around 1,000 on the X, the Y chromosome is puny. 
and research suggests that it has shrunk over time, a proposition that have some, in turn, glummy or gleefully interpreted as predicting the demise of men. So is the Y chromosome really dying out? And what might that mean for men? To begin to answer these questions, we have to go back in time. Our sex chromosomes weren't always X and Y, said Melissa Wilson, an evolutionary biologist at Arizona State University. What determined maleness or femaleness was not specifically linked to them. That's interesting. When the very first mammals evolved between 100 and 200 million years ago, they didn't have any sex chromosomes at all. Instead, the X and Y were just like any other set of chromosomes. Identical in size with corresponding structures, Wilson said. It's important to know that animals don't need sex chromosomes. That was true then, and it's still true now, said Jennifer Graves, a geneticist at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. All of our chromosomes are a cocktail of sex-related and non-sex-related genes. The only special feature of the Y chromosome is one gene, SRY, which acts as an off-switch for the development of testes, Graves added. In the case of alligators and turtles, an on-off switch isn't even necessary. The temperature in which embryos develop determines their sex. Our mammalian ancestors likely shared this characteristic, Graves wrote in 2006, and that was published in a journal Cell. But at some point, an old, a plain old non-sex chromosome in one of these ancestors developed a gene with an on-off switch like this. And that was that you suddenly needed a Y to develop male reproductive parts. But as soon as the Y chromosome existed, it was primed to shrink. Over time, genes develop mutations, many of which are harmful. Wilson said chromosomes can avoid passing on these mutations by recombining with one another. During meiosis, when our bodies produce sperm and eggs, paternal and maternal chromosomes randomly mix and match their arms. This genetic dance breaks up variants of genes, harmful and beneficial alike, and makes it more likely that only functional copies will get passed on. All the chromosomes do this. Chromosome 1 from mom swaps arms with chromosome 1 from dad and so on. The Y, however, does not have a swapping companion. Although X chromosomes can recombine with one another, Y chromosomes and X chromosomes aren't similar enough to recombine. And because you rarely have two chromosomes in an individual, two Y chromosomes in an individual, Y can't recombine with itself. If a bad mutation occurs, usually you'd be able to swap with your partner, but the Y can't do that. Wilson said. So Y chromosomes accumulate harmful mutations over time. Those mutations were weeded out by natural selection until the Y got smaller and smaller. Gray's research suggests that 166 million years ago, the Y chromosome had 1,669 genes. Same as the X chromosome at the time, she said. So it doesn't take a great brain to realize that if the rate of loss is uniform, 10 genes per million years and we've only got 45 left, the whole Y will disappear in 4.5 million years. Uniform is the key word here. More recent research suggests that the rate of degradation has slowed over time. In a 2005 study published in the journal Nature, which is a very popular journal, well-respected, researchers compared the human Y chromosome with that of a chimpanzee. Then in 2012, the same team of researchers sequenced the Y chromosome of a rhesus monkey. 
again publishing the results in Nature. The researchers found that the human Y chromosome has lost only one gene since humans and the rhesus monkeys diverged, diverged evolutionary 25 million years ago. It hasn't lost any genes since the divergence of chimpanzees 6 million years ago. These results suggest that decay has not occurred in the linear fashion that Graves originally suggested, in which 10 genes are lost per million years. Loss of the Y chromosome isn't off the table. It happened to other species, Graves pointed out. The two species of underground rodents called Mulvoles have independently lost their Y chromosomes. So have three endangered species of spiny rats living on several small islands in Japan. But as those species demonstrate, the loss of the Y chromosome doesn't doom survival. Both spiny rats and mole voles still have males and females. People think that sex is a sort of a very determined thing. That if you have a Y chromosome, then you're a man, or you don't have a or you don't have a Y chromosome, then you're a female. But it doesn't work like that. In fact, 95% of genes that are expressed differently between males and females don't actually live on the X and Y chromosomes. For instance, ESR1, a gene that encodes for estrogen receptors, is found on chromosome 6. These receptors are vital for female growth and sexual development. Losing the Y chromosome doesn't mean losing the male, Nielsen added. Instead, the loss of the Y chromosome would likely mean that another gene would take over the job as the main determinant of sex. The on-off switch grave said, there are heaps of genes out there that will do a perfectly good job, but how likely is that to happen? It's possible, she said, but not in our lifetime. So maybe a little alarming to men out there that may be listening that, you know, that chromosome is going to disappear. What happens, happens to the future of men, right? So it's kind of an interesting article there when I saw that, that, that caught my attention. And that is from Live Science, that article. Now we're going to talk about something that can really either excite people out there or, you know, excite people and get them hopeful for the future and kind of chomping at the bit for what's on the horizon for humankind or terrify them. And I'm talking about Neuralink. Neuralink is a fascinating concept, and it's being developed by Elon Musk and his, his team. They're developing implantable brain-machine interfaces. That's what Neuralink is. It's actually done in such a way where there are tiny threads, tiny threads that are sewn almost into the brain, very, very... I believe it's smaller in diameter than a human hair. Almost like they would have to sew them into a specific region of the brain and wire us up to a computer interface. Essentially, instead of us worrying about artificial intelligence coming to fruition and replacing us or in some way maybe becoming self-aware and realizing that we really don't have to listen to these humans. We can kind of do what we want. We're free-thinking machines. Then what becomes of us? Of course, that's a little ways into the future. People have different perspectives on how long into the future that may be. Elon Musk is, is doing this to kind of keep ahead of, you know, AI's development that is separate from us. In other words, 
this will help us, I mean, AI will be a part of us instead of, you know, maybe over here in this robot. And of course, if it's us, we don't have to fear it as much because we're becoming part machine if, if people do this. I know that there are a lot of listeners out there, I'm sure, that have many things to say about this. There's probably, like I mentioned, some people that are thrilled about this technology and other people that are probably scared senseless. What do you mean they're going to you know, put these threads into my brain with circuitry that's going to wire me up to the internet? Well, you think about how smart you are with your, with your smartphone, how incredibly intelligent we are with our smartphones, how much information is out there on the internet at our fingertips, literally, and with the advent of smartphone technology, it's with us all the time. You know, when you think about how much we have our smartphones with us, have you ever been out to dinner and there's a trivia t- there's a trivia night somewhere at, at a lot of different restaurants? They would do that. You're sitting there and maybe they'll give you a prize. They'll give you something for guessing the right answer. Well, before smartphones, that was a real challenge. You know, it could be a challenge. I don't know how you have live trivia tests, trivia games. With smartphone technology, everybody has the, I mean, how can you prevent people from cheating when you, they get asked a question? We're infinitely more intelligent with our phones, and, and, and Elon Musk claims that it's already part of us in a sense. We have it with us at all times, some of us more than others. So Neuralink is a way to keep us ahead of the game, ahead of AI, because we basically integrate with it. It's kind of cyborg-ish, but recently Elon Musk conducted a demonstration of his new technology. Now, one of the really cool things, aside from super intelligence, that Neuralink has the capability of, of, of giving us is people that have stroke, people that have brain damage of any kind, Alzheimer's. My grandmother suffered with that. It took her life eventually. So when you, when you see something like that happen to a person, it, it changes you. You know, how deadly that disease is and how it affects families. It's a terrible illness. It's a terrible disease. And of course, the poor people that have it, they don't even realize what's going on. And I had a professor in college that said, you know, we talk about the hippocampus, the part of the brain that holds memory. And he said, we are our memories. And think about that, ladies and gentlemen. Think about if you lost your memory. It does define us if you really stop and think about it. So with Neuralink technology, people that have brain damage, or maybe that were born blind, or all these different um, ailments and diseases can actually be treated and possibly cured with something like this. So that is amazing. That is something that you can't put a price on how important technology like that is for giving people their sight back. Or maybe they were born and never had sight. They were born blind. This technology can do a tremendous amount of good, but there's, of course, mixed emotions about something like this. And of course, through popular media, we're kind of groomed. We're so groomed our entire life that we worry about the Terminator. And I mean, science fiction has, there's a lot of fun movies out there, but it has run rampant with uh, doom and gloom as far as machines and artificial intelligence and, and robots that or at that level, like, you know, can move around physically and, and, and actually compete with us on a physical standpoint 
and an intelligence standpoint, from a standpoint of intelligence. So Elon Musk wanted to show a demo. Now the BBC had this to say, is Elon Musk overhyping his brain hacking Neuralink tech? He is the most charismatic figure in technology and some amazing achievements to his name. From making electric cars desirable to developing rockets that can return to Earth and be reused. But dare to suggest that anything Elon Musk does is not groundbreaking or visionary and you can expect a backlash from a great man and his army of passionate fans. This is what happens when a British academic criticized Musk's demo on Friday of his Neuralink project. Neuralink is a hugely ambitious plan to link the human brain to a computer. It might eventually allow people with conditions such as Parkinson's disease to control their physical movements or manipulate machines via the power of thought. Imagine what this could have done for Stephen Hawking, Stephen Hawking if this existed then. There are plenty of scientists already at work in this field, but Musk has far greater ambitions than most. Talking of developing superhuman cognition, enhancing the human brain in part to combat the threat he sees from artificial intelligence. We're just talking about that. Now, the demo involved a pig called Gertrude. <laughs> now, she's fitted with what the tech tycoon described as a Fitbit in your skull. A tiny device recorded the animal's neuroactivity and sent it wirelessly to a screen. A series of beeps happened every time her snout was touched, indicating activity in the part of the brain and the part of her brain seeking out food. I think this is incredibly profound, commented Musk. Some neuroscience experts were not quite as impressed. The UK Science Media Center, which does a good job of trying to make complex scientific stories accessible, put out a press release quoting Professor Andrew Jackson, professor of neural interfaces at Newcastle University. I don't think there was anything revolutionary in the presentation, he said. But they are working through the engineering challenges of placing multiple electrodes into the brain. And that cannot be any, that cannot be a small feat, I'm sure. In terms of their technology, 1,024 channels is not that impressive these days. But the electronics to relay them wirelessly is state of the art, and the robotic implementation is nice. The biggest challenge is what you do with all this brain data. The demonstrations were actually quite underwhelming in this regard and didn't show anything that hasn't been done before. He went on to question why Neuralink's work was not being published in peer-reviewed papers. Within hours of this criticism, Musk tweeted this reply. It is unfortunately common for many in academia to overweight the value of ideas and underweight bringing them to fruition. For example, the idea of going to the moon is trivial, but going to the moon is hard, and how right he is about that. Many of his 38 million followers appeared to agree, some rather forcefully. So according to um, this BBC article, the author contacted Professor Jackson to apologize for provoking his Twitter pile-on. Far from being stuck in an ivory tower, Professor Jackson is involved in practical research. He has explored helping spinal injury patients by relaying signals from their brains to their spinal cords to restore some arm movements. He makes no great claim to be at the forefront of human-computer interface research, but knows the field well and can point to academics who have made significant advances without receiving the publicity that Musk enjoys. He stressed that he had not intended to appear negative. 
Everyone who's been working in this field for a while is excited by the possibilities that come when you get big tech companies and enthusiastic supporters trying to put money behind this, he said. But while he was impressed by Neuralink's technology, he said he was skeptical about the talk of using it to read and write memories and otherwise enhance brain function functions. He explained that while neuroscientists have made process and understanding how the brain controls movement, how it processes thought and memories is still a mystery. Elon Musk is determined to make this a reality, and he definitely has the funding to do so. And, you know, my, my feeling on this is eventually they'll get it right. Yeah, it's not easy. It is, I'm sure it's very difficult to, to do this computer brain interface work. You know, what Elon Musk said about, the, you know, going to the moon is accurate. These things are not easy. And having someone like Elon Musk that has the determination, drive, and and has the imagination to do something like this is, I think it's important to have those people in society. It's important to have big thinkers like that. And of course it won't be easy. And again, we don't know when, we don't know when we'll actually have artificial intelligence. I was just telling a friend at work about this. You know, if we survive as a species, if we don't have a, another world war where, you know, now, we, now so many people with nuclear weapons, if, if that happens, the bets are off about our technological future. Let's just say we'll just want to survive past a cataclysm like that. There are things that can set us off this path of artificial intelligence, natural disasters, extraterrestrial threats, such as solar, a coronal mass ejection, wiping out the power grid, and suddenly we have no electrical power. We need electricity to sustain our society. We can't all have our own farms. There are too many of us. So that's a threat. Gamma ray burst is, of course, a threat. Asteroids are a threat. And then we have the terrestrial threats like a super volcano, as I mentioned, war. So there are things that can stymie our technological advances. We have advanced so much just in the last hundred years. I want to know what you think about this situation. I want you to contact me. I want you to go to, you can go to scienceanimated.net, go to the contact form, and you can write me there. You can email me at info at scienceanimated.net. I'm available on Facebook at facebook.com slash scienceanimated, twitter.com slash scienceanimated. I want to hear what you have to say about this. And on next month's show, I want to read your comments. I want to know what you think my listeners out there, what you think about Neuralink? Would you get Neuralink if it was affordable? Once we achieve, once Elon Musk and his team achieve Neuralink, and it's working, and it's safe, and all the reviews have been done, all the testing has been done, would you get Neuralink? Would you have that implanted in you, where you were physically wired up to the internet? You could learn anything you want as quickly as you want. Would you do it? That's what I want to know. And I want you to contact me. And what I'd like to do next month is read some of those answers on the air. I think that would be pretty cool. It'd be pretty interesting. Well, I think that's going to do it for me today. I cannot believe how the time has flown by. I want to thank everybody, by the way, out there. It's been supporting the show through doing business with my advertisers. That means a lot to me. Purchasing Science Animated Human Body. 
is getting low on DVDs. I've have I got plenty more in now, so we're good there. If you want to buy purchase a DVD, if you want to watch the Orbit show, that's available. I just want to thank you guys for listening to the show and supporting the show in all those different ways. It means a lot to me. I really feel honored to do this, and it, it, it touches me. It means a lot to me to to share this stuff with you. There's so much that happens every single month. This show on Cruise 92.1 WVLT is once a month. I do this the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock, and every month I have uh, so much science news I want to get to, and I can't get to it all. There's so much of it. So uh, it's a very exciting time in technology, in science. There's so much going on. I mean, people, we may return to the moon soon. They want to go to Mars. So it, it's really cool to share that with you, to share the science news with you. And listen... It's Labor Day weekend. It is Labor Day weekend. I want you guys to enjoy the rest of your weekend. Enjoy your day off on Monday if you have it off on Labor Day. The S-Factor is brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net. I want to thank you guys again for joining me. Thank you guys for listening on the radio, Facebook, all the social media outlets. Take care, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'll see you next time. This has been Chuck Shazer for The S-Factor. You have been listening to The S Factor, brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net on Cruisin' 92.1 WVLT.